Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Today, I'm joined by Bill Tannenbaum. Bill is a lawyer who has become a well-known speaker in the data management community. He's a partner at Moses & Singer, building a practice in healthcare technology, cloud IT, and privacy and data security. And he's he's become a good friend of mine over the years, so I'm very excited to have him on the show. Bill, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much, Anthony. It's, uh, it's good to be here. It's good to see you in a new forum. And look forward to speaking to you and your audience about the data issues. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's great to have your perspective on the show, and I think it provides a new kind of look at some of the topics that we've talked about. So how about we get started like we always do with our guests? You know, why don't you take a minute, give our audience a little bit more background about, you know, your career, how you got started with data and, and how, you know, data plays a role in what you do as a, as a lawyer. That's um, something I'd be delighted to talk about. So my background is as a technology lawyer mostly focusing IT, and then I added intellectual property to that because that became a very interesting part of the software world. And I've done a lot of work um, with various kinds of IT, including a lot of outsourcing of services, which triggers a lot of who's in charge of what and all the complication of sharing of responsibilities um, and trying not to share uh, obligations. And from there, I took the lessons that I learned in building an outsourcing practice and found in my career that there were more and more data issues coming up. And I'm building a data practice at Moses and Singer because I find when, when clients come to us with a data issue, it's not always the single issue that they came for. So I'll get to later that I'm involved in healthcare, but someone will come with a HIPAA question. And it's really not just a HIPAA question. It's also a cybersecurity question. And it's not only a cybersecurity question. It becomes a regulatory question under non-HIPAA rules, non-healthcare rules. And then if you get to the fact that, uh, as Anthony, I'm sure we can discuss, data is now a strategic asset for companies. Um, and it's not just back office efficiencies and information, but something that strategically drives what a business is doing. Um, so data is now an asset that can be monetized. It's an asset that involves business strategy. And that, to me, makes it seem that the way to approach data, at least from the legal field, is from a 360-degree view. And if you come in and you just do the HIPAA or the regulatory or the privacy, you're leaving a gap, mm -hmm. probably unintentionally. But you'll find out about the gap when you find out you have not complied with a regulation or with a contract or something else. So that's the goal behind a more um, holistic approach to, to data. Um, to take it one step further, as you mentioned, I'm doing a lot of work in healthcare. Healthcare is just a fascinating field that I've moved into because it's, um, at the end of the day, all of healthcare, you know, the vendors, the hospitals, the insurance, um, is all really aiming towards patient care and more efficient patient care. Okay. Um, so that was a good reason for me personally to enter into healthcare. And then as I did it, my interest in data found a home mm -hmm. because so much of it is data driven. Uh, I think we'll probably talk about machine language as we go, machine learning as we go through this. Mm -hmm. 
But I think the key thing about data in healthcare, at least from a lawyer's point of view, was the following. Healthcare is, is really, to use an appropriate metaphor, a laboratory for data use. Um, and it's adopted quickly, a little bit sloppy probably in healthcare, but it's adopted because it's a much better way to improve patient outcomes and do research. So it's adopted very quickly. So from a lawyer's point of view, you can take all the lessons you've learned running uh, a data project in healthcare because it's at the forefront of data uses and then take that and use that in other industries. And likewise, the way healthcare is organized, it's a step behind financial services and some other industries in some of the IT management and IT infrastructure that's needed to do the good data work. So then you take the best practices from other industries and you import them into healthcare. But just to emphasize the first side of it, it's the ability to take kind of accelerated learning um, in one field and then be able to apply it to other fields. You know, you mentioned that, you know, when you are addressing or, or presented with uh, legal problems, they're often not just that thing. It's like that's one symptom, but there's this whole kind of interwoven tapestry of, of all these other factors at play. And it, I, I smiled because it, it's so true. And cause data leadership is the same deal with like, we're, we're, it's all of these interconnected pieces that work together in harmony. And there's problems that can exist in any of them, the many different functions, and they may manifest in totally different areas. So if you only try to treat the area that has the quote unquote symptom, you may not really address what the real problem is. And and it, it's the same kind of thing. I've often thought like these different functions are all connected in the in the fabric of an organization, but it's like the, the legal perspective is, a, is another layer to that fabric that equally permeates through the entirety of, of the organization as well. Yeah, that's a great perspective. And, and what we share is this is I don't really think I'm solving legal problems. I think I'm solving a business problem yeah. or you know, a technical data or IT problem. Um, you know, clients don't come to me to vindicate the law. They come because they want to do something or they're having a problem or they want legal services to unlock, uh, you know, a new source of revenue or, or a new benefit to the, to the company. So my focus is always, okay, what are we actually trying to do here? Because a lot of law is pretty flexible. You figure out what you want to do and then you draft a contract that, that does it, subject to the intellectual property and privacy regimes. But it's really the focus on, on how do you do that. And the other thing I've learned, especially in the data and IP field, is when someone comes to you with a problem, um, they thought about it. So they're coming and spending legal dollars because there's an issue here that's just got to get done for a business reason. Right. And sometimes I look at this thing and I can see what the conundrum is. And it's often easier to solve this problem by making the problem bigger. <laughs> and if you expand the problem, then it basically gives you more levers to play with and yeah. more ways to solve it. So that's one thing that I think it's important to do is like, okay, we have to identify the objective, identify the whatever the bump in the road is, and then smooth out that bump or get over it. Um, and, and then the next thing is 
uh, you know, to make sure that when somebody is doing something, they're not walking into a minefield of regulatory uh, lack of compliance because it's much better, you know, as a data professional to build compliance in, whether it's in the GDPR or something else, than it is to retrofit it. Sure. Um, because retrofitting never works. It always costs more. You got to go ask for a budget. You got to ask for a budget because something didn't happen the first time when it should have. Um, and then you're usually talking to, you know, some C-suite person who doesn't really have a good grasp of this. So they tend to focus just on the money <laughs> instead of, you know, how you're trying to help the business. So those are the two things. And then, you know, the third is to identify the issues and, a lot of it is risk allocation. And sometimes you look at this stuff and you go, um, this actually is not a big risk. This is not a problem we have to address. I'll give you a funny story once. I was okay. working with a company and they were running uh, a cloud service and they noticed that the cloud service became a forum for ISIS. And it, yeah, you know, just got kind of hijacked. And then... You know, they came to me and the privacy offer officer was saying, well, you know, we can't disclose this information to the police because it's under our privacy policy. Mm. And I said, there's two answers. One, go get a subpoena. Two, what are the odds that somebody from ISIS is going to sue you for breach of a privacy policy? <laughs> Not an important problem. Right. So I don't think you have to worry about that problem. So a lot of it is just judgment and, you know, solve a problem you need to solve. Don't solve a problem that doesn't have a true business risk or put a box around the risk so that it's, you know, you reduced it, but you can't eliminate it. Right. right. Um, yeah, it, it's, you know, as you talk about this notion of expanding the problem, I think of it akin to like, it's, it's loosening the knot. It, it gives you, um, you know, flexibility to do things. And it is, it's like negotiations 101, which is something that I can understand because I certainly am not a lawyer by trade. But in negotiations, one of the key principles is to first determine what's important, what's important to you and what's important to your counterpart who's negotiating on the other side of the table. And if you can figure out that things that are important to you are less important to them and vice versa, you're in a better situation across the board because now you have different points that you can negotiate on and get the best results, the best outcomes for everybody. And and just like negotiations in, in real practice are not a zero-sum game. Like, it's not about destroying the person across the table. It's actually finding an agreeable outcome for all parties. I imagine, like, the legal world works similarly. Like, you're, that sounds like what you're trying to do here is how do we help a business navigate a complexity based on the law, based on a, a legal uh, limitation that then allows the business to do the things the business wants to do. And that's a really important point, and it's a really important legal point, actually, because um, part of what I do is do counseling and advice and set up legal structures for companies where there is no other side. Mm. You know, it's, it's just counseling for the client. The other thing is, you know, we want to share data. We have to have an agreement. Um, and then there's somebody on the other side of the table. Um, sometimes you see people who, A, they don't want to win-win, they want to win-lose, and it's also not fun for them unless the other guys know they've lost. Um, 
I'm not in favor of that approach. I think, you know, both sides have legitimate objectives and there should be a way to, um, to accommodate both of them. And then there's going to be sticky points. Everybody wants to own IDP, all the IP. Well, not both sides can't own the same thing in an effective way. So you have to balance things. But what I usually do is I, I kind of ask my client, I said, you know, what's the stuff that's really important of the bad things that can happen, which are the worst and which are of the least concern to you? Because I want to know what the framework is going in. And then when I sit down, I ask the other side and I say, what's the most important thing for you to get out of this? Um, And then we try and see if we have agreement on those threshold issues. Um, and you know, if you just don't, then you just should stop and, you know, recalibrate who your business partner is, you know, and if you do, and if you solve those issues, then it just, you know, all the dominoes fall over more quickly, except for the bumps in the road that always happen, you know, and, uh, it's a surprise to the business side of the world, but lawyers know this thing is going to happen and you just have to you know, take a deep breath and work it because it's just a problem. You got to figure out what you're solving for. Yeah. And, uh, and the fun part, actually, of what I do is, you know, inventing new structures and solving problems and trying to solve them in a business way. Uh, I'll give one example that's not really a healthcare problem, but uh, I was doing a project for a proton therapy machine, which is we're back in healthcare now. And this is really, really, really pinpoint uh, radiation. Um, Very cool, very expensive. And it was being approached as a kind of traditional outsourcing problem, which is we're going to have uptime. And if we meet the uptime, then there's going to be a financial penalty. And the financial penalty is going to grow or get earned back. And so you're basically fighting about a couple of hundred dollars or a couple of thousand dollars for missing um, that. And I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, we're not solving a problem here. The problem we're trying to solve is these things break all the time because they're so complex and there's a limited number of repair people. Hmm. So the real goal is how do you get the repair people to come and fix your machine? And how do you get it done quickly? Because you can balance off the, you know, the penalty imposed by the service level, or you can lose the ability to keep all the patients on their schedule because the machine's down for a whole day, right. which really screws up people's health. And it also costs the hospital a lot of money because they don't get the reimbursement from insurance for doing the procedures. So what I tried to do is say, okay, our real problem is getting the SWAT team here when we need them. So why don't we structure the service levels so that there's kind of an incentive um, and a reward to get the guys here by lowering the service level requirements because we're more concerned about when it goes wrong than we are um, trying to kind of just get nickel and dime compensation for something when it really is not, okay, I haven't processed all my invoices for a day. It's not nearly as important as missing procedures for 30 people. Right. Right. And then when you apply that to data, it's the same kind of thing. You have data rights and you have sharing rights. And if something breaks down and the data is not shared or provided, well, then the business operation can't go forward without that data. So the problem is, how do we get the data flowing again? Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's shift gears because I mentioned in your intro 
that you uh, speak frequently at, at data management conferences. And I also speak at data management conferences. Um, and you're the only lawyer I see, well, at least the only admitted lawyer I see uh, in, a, in a lot of the, the speaker lists there. And, and for anybody else who's out there, you get one guess as to how Bill and I met at one of these uh, data conferences. But you, you, we've, you know, we've known each other for years now. I don't know that I even know the story of how did you get started and how did you find this? Because even people that have long careers in their function in, you know, related to technology or related to data, they don't seek out the the audience of that and, and try to go connect there. You did. So how did how did you get your start doing that? Well, it's an interesting story. So uh, Tony Shaw from Dataversity and I were both attending another association's very, very kind of, what does tomorrow's IT look like? Mm. Um, and so we're at this conference, and we met, and I asked a question that was kind of data-focused instead of IT-focused. Mm. Um, and it struck a lot of the people on the stage as kind of, I haven't thought about that before. Um, so then we had a dialogue, and we worked it out, and it got discussed over lunch tables. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, Tony called me up and said, you know, that was kind of an intriguing discussion. Um, let me tell you more about Dataversity and let me invite you to speak at EDW. So that's how I met Tony. Um, and that's the story. And yeah. then I like coming to the conferences because I like meeting smart people who are dealing with, you know, the tech part of data and data as an asset. Uh, and I think a lot of lawyers uh, kind of treat data uh, I don't think they understand really what data is, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, I have a patent law background too. So it's, yeah. you know, when do facts become data? When does data become information? And when does that become actionable? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and for a lot of lawyers, um, you know, they may think of it as just an asset you buy and sell and they don't understand the strategic purpose. Right. Well, and, and I mean, something even as simple as the notion of data as a strategic asset it's a little bit different than oil as a strategic asset because when you consume data, the data is not lost. It can still be there, and there's still potential value in it. There's still potential risk in it, and it's it doesn't get consumed the same way. And the very nature of it is is a little bit different. Like who who owns data, I think, is a fascinating topic as well. Like and and you know do and that maybe just put on my my data you know citizen hat on for a second. You know who owns my data? Like do do I actually like even if something as simple as like my phone, which like all humans, I'm on you know twenty hours a day and and you know have everything in my life kind of flows through the phone. Do I own that data? If I take a picture and store it on my phone, is that still my picture? Can somebody take that? Who? How does that stuff get resolved? Who decides that? Um, this is the key question right now uh, that I face. Um, and data is funny because it's like, well, what does data mean in this context, right? So in a classic IP framework, which is how do we protect data? Let me kind of give you the hierarchy. So an individual item of data that it's 76 degrees today and it was 20 degrees more than it was yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, those are kind of facts. And those facts are not protectable. They're okay. free. Okay, then you put data into a database. Okay, ah, now you've triggered an IP issue. Mm -hmm. 
just to give you the insider scoop, that's a copyright issue and databases are called compilations under copyright law. Okay. So how do you protect a database? Well, you can't protect the database if it's organized in some obvious way, like alphabetizing a phone book or something. But if you have a certain organization of your data, then that's eligible for copyright protection. Um, let's skip the really weird problem of what does that protection really give you. Hmm. But what it does give you is at least you own data when it's organized that way. And then that's useful because you can monetize it and license it and control it, mm -hmm. even if you're not licensing it for a lot of money. Now, the interesting question becomes, um, you know, this is where the tie to machine learning comes in. So you take this data, you use it as a training set, you run it through machine learning, generate a model, and at the end of the day, that generates a refined data set. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now you have a derivative data set. And that is probably more protectable than the original data set because it probably has more features of special organization and structure mm -hmm. that are even, you know, more complex than what was input to the, the beginning of the machine learning process. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then it gets complicated because, well, whose data is this now? Have you combined it? You know, so, right. So you can separate the data from the database, mm -hmm. but then who owns the database? That is a really complicated question that we don't have time to answer. But the short answer is you just solve it by contract because the law is very complex on that. Right. And then it gets really interesting because for copyright purposes, um, you have to create the copyright. Um, and what happens when this machine starts creating the data? Yeah. This is what we don't know because the law assumes that the copyright creator is a natural person. Huh. Okay, so when the machine is creating the databases, you know, at some point, the machine is so far removed from the original programming mm -hmm. or the original data that it's like, okay, well, if this were a person, that would be great. But it happens not to be a person. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So who owns that? And it's um, that itself is tough. And then it gets tougher when it's machine to machine, like in deep learning. Um mm -hmm. All right, so now the law just, you know, they did this stuff with Thomas Jefferson, so they never contemplated this. And um, the short answer is you have to sit down and work it out in an agreement. So yeah. it becomes private law. And, and I'm working on a new model, if I can just explain this. So I yeah. think, you know, sometimes data ownership is not important as the right to use data or data sharing. And the ownership is like, you know, in theory, it's a path towards doing that. But in practicality, if you're clever, it's not the only path towards doing that. So I've been focusing on a, a model that kind of sidesteps it by saying, okay, we're going to talk about decision rights. Mm. And, you know, which entity in this ecosystem has the right to deliver data? Which entity has the right to do something with the data? And what decisions can they make within what field and up to what limit? Yeah. And I think that's more reflective of how it's used in business. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the contracts, which establish the legal parameters for this, should be more reflective of that approach. So, you know, there is no law on data rights right now. Hmm. But I think if I'm right, hang around, come back in a couple of years, and we'll find that is the template and the um, uh, really the framework for how to sort these rights out.
Yeah. So and in a way, I, I just will tell you this. I look at water law, right? Because water law is kind of the same thing. You know, it's, it's water that's flowing down a riverbank. Okay. Uh, you know, you don't want to own an individual bubble or a molecule. Right, <laughs> you know, right. you don't want the power of the water or the right to divert it. So it's this kind of incohate stream. And you're really talking about not the water itself, but what do you do with what water does? Mm-hmm. And that, I think, kind of informs how the law should approach data rights in the real world. Yeah, I could see a parallel to that as well. But I just think about the, that whole notion of data sharing is fascinating to me because, like we talked about earlier, data isn't finite. Like, you don't consume data and then it's gone. Whereas, like, if, if I have a bar of gold, only I can have that. You can't have that bar of gold, too, and, and us both own it equally. Like, that doesn't make any sense. But in data, if I have the data... And you have a copy of the data. We both have the data. And and like you said, it's it's a it's a question of how do you use that data, how do you make that happen? It's not the the physical um you know entity of the data that really matters. It's what are you allowed to do with it and how do you put it into use? How do you know what restrictions are on it or, or what have you? That is what matters. It's it's the result of that force, not the not the data itself. Yeah, and that's what we have to capture when we do you know, the legal relationships, you know, mm-hmm. got to make that clear, got to restrict it when you need to restrict it. You've got to get the rights when you need to do actual stuff with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, you know, data is dynamic. It, there's a life cycle to it. And, you know, two years from now, that data might not be as useful as it was, right. even though it might be in the system, so to speak. So you've got to create a system in law that accounts for the dynamic and the evolution of this life cycle. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, the data in that sense is it's there, it's evolving, different people are going to use it, and use doesn't mean disappear or you've eaten it. It's mm-hmm. there and it can be used by somebody else, like you said. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm just thinking, like, how data is different than other things. And and like I said, I, I don't claim to be a lawyer, but I, I understand enough just functioning in the business community. I am fascinated by this that notion of, of the IP in, in the context of, of machine learning and, and kind of how you talked about, like, the data itself, you know, is the data. Like, like think of just, like, weather information is a good example. If I create an algorithm that then predicts the weather very well. I think it's pretty reasonable to say that there's some IP that I would have a claim to in that algorithm that I created to predict the weather. Fine. But if I applied a machine learning algorithm, or even if I just applied deep learning, where it looked at all this data, looked at tremendous amounts of data and came up with a way to predict the weather, the notion, and for any people who aren't very familiar with all the context of, of deep learning out there, it basically can predict, but it's identified patterns in the data and connections in the data that aren't easily put into an algorithmic, you know, E equals MC squared type of calculation to spit out a weather forecast. It's it's by its design not able to be defined. So how in the world could we actually assign IP to that mess that we can't even put into words? Like, is that... that it has to be done in the context of the outputs of it, right? Or like some other parameters. How does that even work? Actually, I think the focus would not be on the outputs. It would be on the on the formula, so to speak, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the algorithm that decides how much weight to give different facts, uh-huh. different pieces of data. 
and, and you would protect it that way. Because what is this weather program doing? You know, it's looking at a billion variables and it's showing over time that if there's a low pressure zone 100 miles from now and that meets up with a high pressure zone 300 miles from now, you're going to get rain in two days, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, now, machine learning um, is a lot of pattern recognition mm-hmm. uh, so that, you know, the ability to just churn through this stuff really quickly um, and identify patterns um, that may escape certain individuals, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's where the value is, I think. Right. Uh, so the answer to your question is kind of back to what I said, okay? The output is now kind of the data sharing. How you generate the output is more IP protectable because it looks like a piece of software. You know, it's a, it's a model. And somebody has decided this model um, is useful. And to take another sidestep into health, um, in healthcare, you know, doctors generate the data as opposed to just pure data sets. So the doctors are training the machine too. And they want to know how to open the black box so they can figure out with the machine learning model how much weight it decided to give to a certain factor. Mm. Um, and so because they have to know how the results got there when it gets really complex. Yeah. Uh, I think it's actually going to combine health and uh, autonomous vehicles are going to combine because they're very similar. You know, autonomous vehicles have to decide really quickly whether that's a shadow or a person. And you know, run it over or not. And, uh, you know, cloud isn't fast enough, so we're all going to have to do more edge computing. Mm -hmm. And then um, the consequences, it's not losing money, right? It's somebody getting hurt. Uh, So that's the commonality, I think. And I think they're going to buy, borrow from each other, those two different fields. I could see that. That makes a lot of sense because it's a different level of risk and consequence in both of those versus, you know, algorithmic trading, algorithmic trading, you could, uh, there's more risk acceptable in that circumstance, um, you know, and, and, and less clarity acceptable uh, in the, in the processing of data versus, you know, something with, with life and death on the line. I don't think anybody is, is reasonably willing to put, you know, sit in a car that is like, it should work. It worked before and and be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you one illuminating story about kind of databases. So, you know, if they were trying to build a a program that could identify, you know, a bad skin lesion from just an ordinary rash. Mm. And, you know, what's the typical way you do this in machine learning? You feed it a bunch of images so it can decide what the key values are and it can start deciding itself. Well, the quasi-humorous thing here was when everybody had a lesion, they took a picture of it with a ruler because they were always measuring how big the the ruler was. And then if it was a rash, there was no ruler. So the machine figured out, okay, ruler equals lesion. (laughs) So it wasn't looking at the lesion. It was (laughs) looking at the fact that there's a ruler in the picture. Okay. You know, so that's why you have to kind of get in this thing and figure out, all right, this is really useful data, but is it, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it just for some reason that just reminds me, like, I'm, you know, a, a, a pretty technical person. I build data warehouses. I do data stuff like I'm pretty technical and I and I like technical gadgets and toys and things like that. But I, for the life of me, cannot stand 
the voice assistants that are out there right now because I, I can't deal with the fact that so often I don't get what I want. Like, I'm okay. I'm accepting of the fact, like, when I type something into a Google search yeah. bar, like, that's on me. You know, that's me creating, yeah. you know, the, the inputs to an algorithm very directly. But when I'm talking to Alexa and Alexa doesn't understand me, I become enraged because I can't handle the fact that Alexa didn't understand my words coming out of my mouth. And then, I, and then even if she does, I I don't get to the answer that I want. And and it's that kind of expectation that I think causes a lot of the concerns out there. Um, you know, even when it comes back to much simpler contexts of data in our workplace, data in our businesses, I think uh, most of the time when I was when I was consulting frequently, I would I'd go to a new organization and almost inevitably somebody would be like, our data is terrible. It's awful. We can't do anything with it. And I'm like, that's literally impossible. Of course, you can do something with it. it, it, it there's not it's not terrible, like, but it just feels overwhelming very quickly. And I think so many of these things have become just so complex or so big or so just daunting to address what we, what we become accustomed to in our, in our personal lives, where we can tap a couple buttons on our phone and a car shows up and we go somewhere. Granted right now it's driven by a human, but at some point it's going to be driven by itself. That's our expectation. We go into the workplace and all of a sudden we're like, this stuff is really hard. It's hard to do data things. It's hard to trust the information that we're given because we know how the sausage is made at work. And it's not necessarily something that we're you know, very comfortable with. And, and I think that that kind of collision, again, becomes something that, um, you know, can cause indecision, can cause us to take a kind of end around path to things like protecting our data or security or you know the um you know protecting the ip that we've created because we don't even know where to start with those kinds of things so that would you know that that brings up a, a good question uh for you is that you know we've covered several different topics today if somebody say created something that they think um you know has some real value from an intellectual property perspective whether machine learning or, or something simpler where do you start, whether you're an entrepreneur or part of a larger organization, how do you start to, to protect yourself in a, in a way that's reasonable? So what you have to do is you apply the filters that come from the different intellectual property regimes. And you have to kind of trust your lawyer to understand that the same thing, software, can be protected both under copyright and under patent in different ways. Mm. So... You know, you come to a lawyer and you present it. So the lawyer goes through, okay, does it satisfy the requirements for patentability? Okay, which is a pretty high bar. Um, it's In patent language, it's got to be novel and non-obvious. So novel means new, and non-obvious means it's not a step that anybody in the field would have taken if they thought about it for a little bit. Um, so... And then people get confused because sometimes they think it doesn't count unless it's Nobel Prize winning science. That's not the standard because mm -hmm. that's not novelty. That's just genius. We're not going for genius. We're going for novelty. Ah. Or they think whatever they do is so cool that it must be patentable because it's cool. And it's like, well, you know, sorry to tell you, that's just an application of something <laughs> that's been done already. So, no, or it's obvious. Yeah. So you run through patent stuff and you see where you come out. It's got to be copyrightable, uh, almost always. Mm -hmm. But the question is, does that do you any good? 
Wow. Right. And then in patent land, the way to understand a patent is that it's a contract with the government. And you go and say, I have this thing that's new, novel and non-obvious. And if the patent office agrees with you, they grant you a patent. And the deal is, is that you get patent protection for 20 years. And at the end of 20 years, um, everybody can use it. But everybody can use it means the patent has to teach them what to do. Hmm. So the issue to me is that, okay, I've got this really cool tip of the iceberg, but to get a patent, I've got to tell everybody about the 10 feet of the iceberg that's below the surface. And the issue may be, well, that's all the cool trade secret stuff that I don't want anybody to learn. Mm -hmm. So if you end up disclosing your trade secrets that are really important to get patent protection, that may be a bad equation, Mm -hmm. right? Because you're giving away too much to get too little. So you've got to do that. It's a very complicated dance, um, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then so we've discussed copyright, which really is in the software data field. Mm-hmm. And then there's trade secrets, which are pretty good, but hard to do in today's fast-moving world because it's not a trade secret if it's not a secret. And mm-hmm. you're going to have to disclose it. And that's where it gets into NDAs and other kinds of confidentiality provisions. Huh. Um, but then you work backwards and go, okay, what do I want to do with this stuff, right? Um, and, you know, do I want to stop other people from using it? Do I want to attract investors? Um, you know, do I want to uh, build on it in the future? Mm-hmm. So those are the things you have to think about with IP. And you have to really decide whether you care if you own it or whether you care if you can control somebody else's use of it. Yeah, And that's how you start. Well, and it, and I'm glad you, you mentioned these things. I'm, I'm glad I thought to ask the question because we actually had a similar conversation years ago when I was developing the data leadership framework that is core to my book. And I said, you know, I don't want to protect this. I want to make this free because it's as as my business is about data leadership advocacy, I'd much rather people use it freely and build upon it and do whatever they want versus hold something back that I think is just a reasonable conclusion to the inputs that I've had. And I'd much rather focus my energies on creating copyrightable content like books and you know trainings and podcasts and, and all of that stuff. Um and and that's fine. But I think like the key that that I took away from from a similar answer you gave me years ago is that be deliberate about it. Be thoughtful about it. Don't just fall into any of those things without thinking about the pros and cons and costs and you know risks involved with wherever you kind of land on that spectrum. Yeah, and there's really not a lot of point of going through this very complex trying to own something that's like water and squishy mm-hmm. when at the end of the day you want to share it, you know, yeah. because you know, you built the box and then you immediately empty the box. So, you know, if you're pouring water out of the box, well, the box is nice. You know, the box heats the water and turns it into hydrogen or something. Well, then that's a cool box and that's what you care about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I definitely agree. So we only have a couple minutes left and the time flies by and hopefully we'll be able to have you back on the show uh, multiple times in, in the future. So, so that's fine. But in the, um, you know, 
in the last couple minutes, I would like to talk a little bit about GDPR and CCPA and just where those stand today. Because, And it may just be that I'm swimming in different circles than I did a couple years ago. But the fact is, is that it used to be on top of everybody's mind all the time. And now I at least am not hearing as much coming out in, in writings or in the news or, or what have you about these. Have they become less important? Are they changing? Am I just out of the loop? What's going on with GDPR and CCPA today? Okay, so, you know, GDPR is the European rule that protects the privacy of data. And, uh, you know, at the very highest level, it's like you can't collect data without telling people what you're doing. Um, you restrict it on what you can do with it. And uh, if you're a data subject, which is European talk for a person, you are entitled to get some certain insight and stop certain things. So that's what GDPR does. And the U.S. is probably having people who are more sensitive to their privacy than they used to. So it's probably becoming a more acceptable framework. Mm -hmm. CCCPA is where things are interesting. So that's the California Consumer Protection Act. Mm -hmm. um, and even though it's California, when you get through all the legal stuff, it applies to everybody in the United States. Because mm -hmm. um, the, the touch point is, are you dealing with a California consumer? So it's very hard to be in business and not do that. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, to be cynical about it, the CCPA is like, you know, somebody sat down and did the GDPR in seven days. So, it's, <laughs> you know, it, it's not quite there. But um, those are things that are attempting to kind of re address big tech and give some control over the data. The thing people need to know about GDPR is that it's a big mess right now. Hmm. Um, the rule of the GDPR is you can send data out of Europe to another country that provides similar privacy protections. The United States does not qualify as a jurisdiction that provides those protections. Hmm. Um, therefore, you have to do it through some standard contractual terms, which are mandatory and not negotiable, or through what's called the privacy shield, which is a way to say, um, my company is a country, you know, wow. so you can trust me. Okay, so the privacy shield got invalidated, so boom. <laughs> and the standard contract provisions have been uh, not given the automatic deference they need to. So it's like, well, how do you do that when the two legal vehicles disappeared? Hmm. Obviously, this has to be solved. But that's where we are right now. So you have to know if you're de de relying on your privacy shields, you're re relying on a null set, and that's not helping you. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the lawyers are looking at this stuff, and they're going, well, if we need to transfer and share data, and we've now killed the legal vehicles for doing this, you guys got any better ideas? Um, <laughs> you know. So that's, that's going to be fixed. The point, I think, to data professionals is, that, you know, that, any kind of data management or building a database has to have a compliance feature built in. So then when it's used, you're not inadvertently exceeding the scope of consent. Wow. So you need to know what these rules are so that you can assemble data in a way that when it's actually used, it's not going to violate the rules. Right. And, you know, you and I have discussed this a whole lot, Anthony. It's much harder to retrofit that compliance than it is to build it in in the beginning. Right. So that's where I think lawyers and data professionals need to talk to build the compliance into, you know, whatever data framework you're establishing or whatever data you're collecting and putting into different marketing boxes or wherever it's going. Yeah. 
And then CCPA um, is, uh, we don't have time to get into it, but it protects, in some ways it's broader, mm-hmm. in some ways it's less defined. Um, what happens in the U.S. is that it will evolve through cases. Right. It will you know, give some clarity to things. GDPR is the European approach that you just write this regulation and then it is what it is. Um, and so it doesn't have the flexibility to grow to the same degree that U.S. law constructs do. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting – I didn't even know that that paradigm kind of existed between the way the Europeans create their laws and the way uh, we see in the U.S., certainly. Um yeah, there's there's I guess pros and cons to each of it. Some of it seems like oh, we just didn't put in the time to to get the specifics right in the first place. But either way, it's it is what we have to deal with. So, um, any any other closing thoughts before we go? I know we're right at about time, but um, well, I think the really cool thing uh, about data is that because you're at the beginning of treating it as a strategic asset. And that the point probably of big data or machine learning is, you know, not to generate the super data set, but to generate proprietary insights. I mean, you need something actionable, you know. If your goal is to get people to vote, for example, you know, you're going to do the analytics of who's likely to vote for you and how you so, okay, great. Now you know who's likely to go to you. It doesn't do you any good unless you actually get them to vote. Right. 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 Get them in the car or drive to the polling place. I'm skipping the whole mail-in thing now for now, for <laughs> obviously. And, yeah. uh, but you've got to be able to make that actionable. So that's the first point. Mm-hmm. And then the second point is, you know, don't get lost in these existing legal frameworks that don't really work so well. Figure out what you really want to do. And then figure out a way to do that by contract, because that's what the U.S. law allows you to do within certain parameters. Um, And then, as we talked about it before, understand what problem you're solving, you know, and focus on that. Lawyers always think about risk. That's the lawyer's point of view. You know, it's what if, what if, what if, what if. Um, It's not meant to be frustrating. It's meant to do, okay, so if this happens, then what? And if this happens, then what? And then, uh uh-oh, now we have an unsolvable problem. Mm -hmm. So I have to solve the what if. That's what my job becomes. I like it because it's fun working with smart people in a new area with a new thing that doesn't really resemble other assets. Like you said, you know, several people can consume it forever. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And that's just different and fun. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I'll add, I'll add a bit of advice for those of you who are not lawyers out there, you know, find a good partner in in a lawyer that gets the need to do business stuff. Like one who just says, no, you can't do that. Isn't really a, a advocate for what you need. And so having someone who can understand, you know, this, this risk management aspect of, of the, the legal profession, I think is, is so important um, to understand how, you know, that works. So I've, I've really appreciated, you know, getting to know you and, and your perspective, because it's helped me learn how to work with the lawyers I interact with in, in my day job and, and what have you. Well, I've enjoyed learning, you know, from you and the others at Dataversity about the trends and you know, uh, I've been doing data fabrics, for example, you know, and a lot of AI. And it's really fun to work with people who are building these techniques and building these, uh, you know, data structures. Um, because, you know, like, 
this is going to really lead to something that didn't exist before. Yeah. It's unleashing power. It's unleashing decision-making. It's unleashing a way to accomplish stuff. Um, so as a lawyer, that's very fun to be in. Um, and the fun part about being a tech lawyer is every five years you're doing something you didn't do five years ago. True um, enough. True enough. I mean, data is awesome. We all, we, anybody listening to this, I hope is, is agreeing with that. It's, uh, yeah, the, the data leadership podcast after all. So, um, Bill, it's awesome to have you on the show. I hope you'll come back and visit us again soon. And, and, you know, thank you so much for, for doing this. Terrific. Thank you, Anthony. And thank you for watching or listening today. You'll find links and more information about today's topic in the show notes. Subscribe to our show on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Algman.com to learn more about Algman Data Leadership and the many ways we can help you become a data leader. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact.